This is episode 525 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There is a statement attributed to the popular humorist Mark Twain that summarizes the dark forces that seem to be gathering against the church in these last days. And the statement goes like this, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. In other words, what we see on our horizon is like what the church has suffered in the past. And the ways and methods of church persecution revealed in the book of Acts are the same that are being used against the church and faithful Christians today. But there's one difference. In times past, the church was on fire as it lived under fire. But today, not so much. Today, we will look at Acts 3 and 4 and clearly see the methods of intimidation, deplatforming, cancel culture, and raw threats of asset forfeiture and imprisonment that were hurled against the first century church are pretty much the same that are being thrown at the church today. The situations and circumstances of the persecutions may differ, but everything else remains the same. So join us as we learn from the example of the early church how to stand strong in the face of persecution and threats by keeping Jesus in the center of all we do. And as we learn how to do this, we'll also learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, the book of Acts is probably one of my favorite books in the scripture because it takes ordinary men like you and I, nothing special about these guys. These guys did not have college educations. These guys did not come from well-to-do families. They were just a bunch of, we're going to find out later on, uneducated and unlearned men. But they'd been with Jesus. Jesus instructed them in such a way that their life was changed forever. And in Acts chapter 1, of course, we have this commission going out where Jesus is getting, getting ready to ascend into heaven and he's giving his disciples some instructions. And we've gone over this so many times where he says that, um, that you shall be witnesses unto me when you receive something you haven't received yet. I, I talked about it. It's now coming. I'm getting ready to ascend and to be with my father. I will come again in a like manner at some time in the future. But in the meantime, I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you shall receive power. The one thing our world needs more than anything is to see Christians that have dudamas, explosive, miracle-working, Christ-honoring power. You shall receive power. Not when you come to church, not when you memorize scriptures, not when you do good things, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be or become Greek word means to be something that you're not now. Witnesses to me where you're at in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and that's how the book of Acts flows. We got Jerusalem and the first seven chapters. We're moving on into Samaria and Judea, chapters 8 through 12, and in the uttermost parts of the earth, finish the book out. And so Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples go and pray for Uh, 10 days, there's 120 of them. The Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost in a miraculous way. We see that in Acts chapter two. Peter then stands up in the middle of these people and preaches this unbelievable sermon, 297 words. If you exclude the Old Testament passages, 297 words. Some people say maybe that's just a cliff note version, a bullet point version of his message. But the reality is it's 297 words if you take out the scriptures, and he memorizes these obscure passages from Psalm, from Joel, from from other places. And this Peter who denied Christ just a month and a half earlier, this fisherman, this common laborer now stands up and proclaims this incredible message because he had power and understanding and Christ now in him, and 3,000 people get saved. If you read this message, it's very direct. Verse number 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I mean, he wasn't mincing words. This was a guy that ran from just some 
maid in a garden at night or in a, in a courtyard at night because she said, I recognize you. You're a Galilean. Your voice betrays you. I don't know Jesus, calls down curses. I don't know the man and runs and hides, afraid. Wanted to go back fishing when it was all over. I'm going to my old life, Acts or John chapter 20, and, and Christ restores him. And this is who this guy is. But something happened to him in Acts chapter 2, and it's the same thing that happened to you and I, that we received power when the Holy Spirit fell upon us. The problem is, in the church, we're never expected to use that power because nobody else uses that power. And the people who claim to use that power are kind of charlatans, so maybe that power doesn't exist. So we developed this whole doctrine that teaches that the Holy Spirit dealt with them differently than he deals with us. For 1,900 years, we've only had a threefold ministry versus a fivefold ministry, and then the Lord has the audacity to call this an abundant life. It's like, well, that's how I loved those guys back then, but you don't need that now. It's ridiculous. And the reason why we come up with this cessationist view is because we haven't experienced it ourselves. So therefore, the problem is either with us, we don't like that, so the problem must be, oh, doctrinally, theologically, it's with Christ. It's all these reasons why he doesn't move that way anymore. But uh, if you talk to some people many times in foreign countries who have experienced Acts chapter 2 power, they're firm believers in it, and you would be too. We all would be if we experienced Acts chapter 2 power. What kind of power is that? Something we've never heard before, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, with the rest of the entourage, is going up the temple about the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they see this man here, this lame man that people carry every day, and he's been there forever. All the Jews pass by, and the priests, the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they see him there. Nobody offers him anything. He's looking for some sort of handout to get him through the day. Peter and John go by, and Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, what I do have and just received not long ago in Acts chapter 2, I will give to you. Verse number 6 of Acts chapter 3. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping, leaping, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Imagine what that would be like. It'd be like, all of us coming to church, and there's this lame man just laying out there in the, uh, the gravel. We've seen him all the time. We top him on the head, drop a, bucket, uh, a dollar or two in his, his little bucket, and, you know, be warm and all that kind of stuff. And then we walk in here like it's nothing. So this other couple comes up to him, talks about this name of Jesus who we totally reject, and the door opens up, and here comes this man that we've seen there year after year after year, decade after decade, leaping and praising God because of this thing that Jesus did. So Peter preaches, and he preaches a really long message, and he talks about the fact that that. God is sovereign and God raised Christ from the dead and he points this message with boldness at them. For example, verse number 12. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you? Verse 13, whom you delivered up and denied. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just, and ask for murder to be granted to you. Implied, verse 15, you killed the prince of life. Verse uh, 16, whom you see and know. Verse 17, I know that you did this in ignorance. I mean, he has taken it to him. You, you, you. Wait, 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 Peter? Peter the scared one? Peter the one with his tail between his legs? Peter the one slinking in the shadows? You, amazing message. And then the institution decides to crush Peter. And then the status quo, the elite, the religious establishment who had a vested interest to downplay this miracle, to especially downplay the reason why this miracle took place, to silence these people, decides to crank up its persecution machine. 
The same machine they had back then is the same machine they have today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the per- the, really the first persecution of the church here. We're going to see if we can glean some truth from it so we can learn how to be on fire during the times the church comes under fire and be able to live the kind of lives that will be well-pleasing to him. It's pretty shocking. First thing you will find as you look at Acts chapter 4 is that the world uses intimidation, powerful intimidation. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we don't like to share anything about Jesus because we're intimidated by people at work. We're intimidated by uh, television talking heads who, you know, seem to know more than we are. I'm intimidated by this loud, bombastic guy that comes in my family, that comes to our family dinners. When I try to meekly share about Christ, he goes, oh, that's a bunch of malarkey. And I cower down because I'm just intimidated by him. Man, they came at, they came at Peter and John with everything they had. There was 11 groups of people that are mentioned here. Acts chapter 4. Now, as or during they spoke to the people, this is a sermon that went on from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until dark. The, here's the first one. The priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. In the Greek, they came upon them suddenly. They just didn't say, excuse me, when you're finished with this point, we'd like to talk to you something. They just stormed in like stormtroopers, moved right in, moved the crowd away, and to put hands on these two guys. We have the priest. We have the captain of the temple guard who happened to be the third most powerful person in all of Israel at that time. Temple of the captain guard and the Sadducees who hated the fact that um, they were talking about this resurrection from the dead. Then when they gathered the rest of the intimidating people together, verse number five, it says it came to pass on the next day that now it's the rulers and the elders and the scribes, as well as Annas, the former legal high priest, and Caiaphas, the current high priest who the Romans put in order, and John and Alexander, who we really don't know who they are right now, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. They came together to intimidate these guys immensely. Back to verse number one. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. That word means to be grieved and in pain. These people were just seriously agitated that they would do something like this. And they were disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the, re- in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then what the Sadducees believed was wrong, and it means that they were wrong by putting him to death. And they laid hands on them, probably not gingerly, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This sermon went on from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until evening. This impromptu message that Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 3. We uh, saw how... If you've followed it on the news, how many of the truckers and the people that supported the truckers in Canada, what's happening in our country today in Washington with the truckers is totally devoid of, the, they don't even talk about it on the news, how they were many times manhandled and, and uh, maced and everything in order to drag them off to jail. We saw how the January 6th people have been arrested and left without bail and thrown in jail for well over a year, and yet other criminals are allowed to walk and go out on bail and stuff of that nature. We, can, we understand how violent and how unfair and how intimidating an arrest like that can be. A bunch of people come in, they roughly lay hands, suddenly they roughly lay hands on Peter and John, throw them to the ground, tie their hands behind them, drag them off to prison like some common criminal. They didn't have to do that. They could have simply said, we want to see you in the morning. Here's a subpoena. Or have your attorney contact the DA. Here's what we expect you to be. But instead, they dragged them off and threw them in jail for doing nothing more than proclaiming a message, for exercising their freedom of religion, if it was today, or their freedom of free speech. But you can't talk like that. There are certain things that you cannot say in Jerusalem, and there are certain things that you cannot say 
here today. And if you do, we will marginalize you, we will deplatform you, and if it gets any worse, we will bind you, we will arrest you, we will silence you like they do in China. They intimidated them, tried to intimidate them. But, verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. I want you to imagine this. Um, people have done calculations on this to try to figure out how many people were getting saved on a daily basis. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls came to Christ. 3,000 people, that's men, women, children, came to Christ. Doesn't differentiate between, differentiate between those. Many of those people were from foreign countries who would come because of the feast day. It is assumed that many of those went back to their, back to their homes, some of them probably stayed, but went back to their homes because when Paul would go on his missionary journey, he would find pockets of believers in strange places that his belief was traced back to what happened in Pentecost. So of the 3,000 people, 120 to 3,120 people after one sermon, maybe half of those, who knows, weren't there. And now we've gone from 2,000, 1,500, whatever number you want to come up with, to now 5,000 men. Men. In a Jewish family, you're talking about a wife and one or two children, maybe more. Estimates say that this number is now between 15 and possibly 20,000 people had come to Christ. It may be a matter of just a few months because there doesn't seem to be a, a wide separation of time between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. How are these people getting saved? Well, Acts chapter 2 talks about that they met in the temple courts daily, and they met from house to house, and they broke their bread with sin sincerity and, and oneness of heart, and the Lord was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. This church was on fire. On fire. There are estimates in Jerusalem at this time, there's probably 150, 175,000 inhabitants, and 25,000 of those, or 20,000 of those, 15 maybe, were now believers in Christ. We killed this Jesus, but his message keeps spreading. We have to stop this. So we got our intimidating guys all together. We got our judges. We got their robes. We've got all the people that want to watch. We have the Sadducees, the Pharisees. We got the scribes. We got the high priest, the current high priest. We have the former high priest. We've got everybody, the family there. We're just going to scowl these two people down. Verse number five, and it came to pass on the next day, as the rulers, elders, scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when it had set in the midst, it had set them right there in the midst, all gathered around, maybe in an amphitheater kind of setting, they asked them this question, by what power? It's Dudamas. What miracle working power? And by what name, that's the authority, have you done this? We find out later on that the man that was healed was standing with him. By what power have you healed this guy? We can't deny a healing took place, but we somehow have to spin this so it's Putin's, Putin's fault or Trump's fault or some other reason than what the obvious is. We've got to figure out how to somehow get people deflected off this miracle that took place. We need to find out in whose name and whose authority and by what power did you do this. We can't do this. And so are you with us or are you against us? By what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, verse number eight, and here's the phrase that changes everything. Filled with the Holy Spirit. If you get a chance, I want you to take the book of Acts, and I want you to take that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, or filled with the Spirit, I want you to trace it through the book of Acts, and you will find that every single time that phrase is used, there's a no compromising powerful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ being proclaimed every single time. You will receive power to do what? To be my witnesses everywhere you go. That's why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. That's why I've saved you in the first place. So you will do what I am doing, proclaiming my message. And every time you're filled with the Holy Spirit, or every time someone's filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, you have this bold proclamation of truth, the very truth that we're intimidated and scared to share today. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, I mean, what would we be saying? Uh, I'm really sorry. Um, I, I, I didn't mean to offend you. I mean, if it's okay, um, can I just go home and I promise I won't do this anymore because, you know, I have a fishing business and I have a house that's almost paid off and I have friends and family and you guys could take all of it away. You could throw me in jail. You could flog me. You could do what you did to my Lord a month and a half ago and you can have me dragged before the Romans and crucified after flogging me almost to death. That's not what he said. Rulers and the people and elders of Israel. And he goes back to when Jesus was confronted of healing a, a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus simply said this, is it, is it a sin to do what is good on the Sabbath or should I only do what is evil? They wouldn't answer his question because what he did was a good act. Peter goes right back to that because he learned from his master. Verse nine, if we this day are judged for the good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Now, he could have stopped and put a period where your text has a comma and answered their question. He could have said this, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, that by the name of Jesus of Na Christ of Nazareth, this has been done. Boom. I've just answered you. You wanted to know what name and what authority? It's in the name of Jesus, but he didn't. He took this opportunity to really incense them by telling them more truth. Whom you crucified, whom God, God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And that's, that's not all. I'm going to quote a passage from Psalm 118. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is our salvation in any other, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. If you're a student of scripture, you realize that the New Testament takes the Septuagint as the translation of uh, the Old Testament. And if you go back and look at Psalm 118, verse 22, you will find it doesn't exactly read the way Peter read it. He adds two words. He adds, by you. By you. It actually reads, the stone which was rejected by the builders. But Peter even made it more pointed. He basically interpreted this passage for them. This is the stone which was rejected by you, 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 the builders of Israel, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. We must be saved. I mean, who, who are these guys? I mean, we can't shut them up. We can't stop them. They're, they're just, you know, we, we confront them with everything that we have, intimidating the socks off them. I mean, these are just ignorant men, uneducated men. I mean, they could read and write, and they were trained in, you know, the synagogue school up till they was about 14 years old. But the fact is that, I mean, they're not scholars. They didn't graduate from Harvard or Yale. They're not part of the Trilateral Commission or, or the... Um, Council on Economic Affairs or anything of that nature. They, they didn't come from the same school, the same pedigree than we do. And these guys are just sticking it to our face. I mean, why? I don't understand. Verse 13. Now, when I saw the boldness of Peter and John. Oh, boldness. Boldness. Gosh, what happened to that in the Christian church? Boldness. You know, um, we would see people as lost and we would love people who were lost so much so that we're willing to sacrifice our own relationship with lost people in order to tell them the truth. That it didn't matter what they did to us because our Lord was raised from the dead. Our Lord fed thousands of people with a 
happy meals, loaves and fishes. Our Lord raised Lazarus from the dead. Our Lord has done so much. Matter of fact, he gave us his authority. We went out two by twos and came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is God Almighty living in us. Why would we not have boldness? But they did because they were filled with the Spirit. Now, when they saw the boldness, verse 13 of Peter and John, and perceived, this interesting word, this means that they basically, it just came to them that, that they didn't say, oh, what, 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 I recognize these guys. Oh, I get it now. These people have been with Jesus. That's why they're so bold. That's why they understand the Old Testament so well. That's why they're proclaiming this message, that they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled, and then they realized, oh, yes, that they had been with Jesus. They didn't have the approved degrees. They didn't have what was necessary to preach in their synagogues, so they preached on the steps outside of that, and thousands of people got saved. And then they realized, like they didn't know it before, that they had been with Jesus. Now, it doesn't say so in Scripture, but when I'm looking at this, I can almost envision a pause between verse 14 and, uh, verse 13 and verse 14. They're all sitting around, and they heard these guys boldly proclaim there's only one way of salvation, that's through Jesus Christ, or looking right next to him, and here's this man that we walked over and ignored and pitied and didn't even like anymore, standing there and holding on to them and leaping and praising God. And these guys are, are uneducated and untrained and are putting us in our place. There's probably this silence, and they begin looking at each other, and then they go, oh, oh, we, we have an issue here. We've got, uh, we've got to get the spin machine out. We've got to get the media uh, covering the same narrative. We've got to uh, call as false news. Uh, our facts check checkers, anybody that talks about it on social media, that this guy was actually healed by this name of Jesus. We've got to spin that. We've got to make sure this doesn't get out because this could be damaging to our position. Verse 14, is seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, I love that phrase, they could say nothing. But when they had commanded them to go out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, uh, we have a problem. We cannot deny all the videos that are being showed of this event, you know, that are posted on social media everywhere, because everybody had a cell phone, everybody recorded all this, and you know, it all went up to the internet. We, we can't blot all that out. Although we can deplatform those people who do that, we cannot deny this miracle. Cannot deny it. We just can't stand the fact that they're crediting this miracle to this Jesus person. Verse 16, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's really amazing here. Verse, verse 16 talks about this notable miracle. Verse 17 uses the word it. And you would normally think as you were reading this that the it refers to the notable miracle, verse 17. But so that it, what, the notable miracle? No, it already says it. Everybody in Jerusalem knows about that. So that's not what the it's talking about. What the it is talking about, that they cannot let them talk about this name of Christ. They cannot accredit anyone for this miracle. But so that it, not the miracle, but the gospel he proclaimed, spreads no further among the people, um, Oh, what can we do? We can only do what governments can do. We can only do what the state can do. We can try to malign the person. We can tell them to stop. We can put them in jail. All we have is raw power. The only power we have is to stop, don't, quit, go away. It's all we've got. It's all the government has now. Take stuff away. It's just raw power. But they can't stop the idea. They can't stop the truth. So that's what they decided to do. So that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Okay, we can't deny that the miracle took place, but you're not allowed to talk about it anymore. You're not allowed to bring that up. You bring that up and you can't, um, 
You know, we're going to mandate you. You bring that up, you can't go fishing on the Sea of Galilee anymore. You bring that up and you can't, uh, you know, you can't go to the synagogue anymore. You bring that up and we're not going to let this happen or that happen or you lose your home or we'll eventually deplatform you and turn around and embarrass you and arrest you. You can't speak anymore of Jesus because all I have is raw power. That's it. It's all the government has. It's all the world has. But you have the truth. You have supernatural power. You have the Holy Spirit living in you that wants to transform you into a person like Peter. So verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. It's always a question of authority. Do you follow their authority or do you follow Christ's authority? By what name have you done this? Uh, in the name of Caesar. Oh, great job. Thanks again. Do it again. And we'll put you on the, the uh, evening news. No, I did it in the name of Jesus. No, we reject that authority because his authority is different than our authority. And you must choose which authority you will follow. Is it God's authority or man's authority? Which brings us right down to this incredible topic of civil disobedience, which we may talk about next week. Because that's exactly what we see here. So verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, what a ridiculous statement, you judge. But for us, for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Peter and John said, I will not bow to your royal authority. And the reason why is the fact that I have a higher authority. There's two authorities here. There's a state authority and there is the civil, uh, there's the God authority. And how do those focus in my life here? And if you'll study civil disobedience, and again, we may, we may talk about this next week or the week to come, or I just may send you something uh, email-wise, you find civil disobedience always falls into one of four different avenues. The first one is I have God's authority and government authority. I'm going to totally reject government authority completely, and I'm going to become a monastic. I'm just going to go live out in the woods, away from everybody, just me and God, like a hermit, and that gave birth to the whole monastic movement back during the Dark Ages. Or you had the secular view, and the secular view is this. Here is Here's God's authority, or here's God's authority, and here's man's authority. And I will always put man's authority above God's authority. The Bible says that, you know, abortion is wrong, and killing a life is wrong, and I, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. But if the government demands that I have to have an abortion because I'm only allowed one or two children, that I will do because I have to follow government authority. Or you have the third section, which is the cowardly way. And the cowardly way is the fact that I don't even have God's authority in my life. I'll do whatever they want to do. Just leave me alone because my best life is happening right now. And then you have the biblical view of civil disobedience, which means you recognize, you recognize civil authority, which we do. Paul talked about that. We all follow laws. And we recognize God's authority. And to the best of our ability, we will follow civil authority until it begins to transgress in the area of God's authority. And then we have to make a decision where even though we follow civil authority, God's authority trumps civil authority. And right now we're living in a time where our civil authorities are no longer making it easy for us to kind of go with the flow. You know, before, if we just stayed in our churches and we didn't go out there in a the big, bad, boogeyman world and we did our little thing and they did their thing, they can do whatever they want out there, just don't bring it to us. But they said no. And it uh, happened first time in 2015 when the Supreme Court ruled uh, in the whole Institute of Marriage and now gay marriage is okay. And so now as a pastor, if I decide I'm not going to perform a marriage ceremony between Frank and Bob, it's not really a marriage, it's an abomination to the Lord, I have broken the law and the law will now come against me. And we see all these cases everywhere. We don't rent the building out to a gay couple. If you don't bake a cake for a gay couple, if you don't put balloons in Happy Gay Day, then all of a sudden there's something wrong with you and the state comes against you because the state says they will no longer allow us to live our way. The governmental thing wants to come and crush the God in us. Biblical view is that we follow the government the best we can, but God always trumps that. It's exactly what... Uh, 
It's exactly what Peter did here. And so the days of you and I just hoping they would leave us alone, it's not happening. They're pounding on our door and they want to conform us to their mind rather than us having the mind of Christ. And it's not only gay things. Now, all of a sudden, if you have employees and you know, you're a Christian businessman or something like that, and one of your employees comes in and says, you know, I don't want to be known as a he or a she. I want to be called us, they, car, whatever it is. If you don't do that, now the government comes after you. It's insane what's going on. It's only going to get worse. What's our position? How do we remain on fire when the church is under fire. Verse 19. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, first act of civil disobedience in the New Testament. Um, that's not true. In the book of Acts, the civil disobedience that took place in the New Testament is when Jesus healed with his man's hand on the Sabbath, when he was in the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath, when his disciples harvested grain on the Sabbath. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. What does the, what does the power do? Back to raw power again. So when they had further threatened him, you better not or I'm going to take your house and your car and your credit cards, and you'll be nothing in this world. So when he had further threatened them, they let them go their way, finding no way to punish them because of the people. Since, all, since they all glorified God for what had been done, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. Wow. So where do we go from here? Well, in church, what happens usually is since churches don't meet in homes anymore or don't meet in private residences or like our barn here, and churches have their own buildings and they have debt and they have corporate structures and stuff of that nature, and church becomes something that has a life of its own and we have to make decisions not based on the people, but we have to make decisions that are based on the institution and the entity you know, of our building because it's like a business here and you guys are ticket holders. Since church in America kind of views it that way, if somebody, somebody on a church staff at a large church actually got in trouble like this with the civil government and they came back to the elders or the board of directors or the pastor or whoever, they would say, what are you doing? We're going to get sued. And if we get sued, we're all going to be out of a job. I mean, they could sue us and they could sue us beyond our liability policy limits and, and we could lose our building. We could lose everything. You need to shut up. Can't you, just, can't you just be like the rest of us and do your own little thing? I mean, don't you care about First Baptist Church or First Presbyterian, whatever you want to call it. The eyes are on the corporate entity rather than being well-pleasing to him. That's exactly the opposite of what happened with this church. Exactly the opposite. One for all, all for one. Verse 22. And being let go... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. Hey, they told us that if we keep preaching in the name of Jesus, that they were going to crush us. They were going to stamp us out. They were going to throw us in jail. They may even kill us. And by the way, that goes not, not just for us, but for all you other guys too. They said, if you do what Christ told you to do, that you're going to pay a severe price for that. And we know what they've already done to Jesus. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Maybe... Maybe, maybe I just want to hide. Maybe I want to be a hermit. Maybe I just want to you know, take the monastic view. Maybe, maybe we don't need to spread the gospel so much. Maybe we need to do something. That's not what they did. They said this. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord, all for one, one for all. And they said, Lord, you are God. You are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, and they quote Psalm 2 about persecution that takes place. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The king of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. 
If you'll read that psalm, you will find it's a conversation in the Godhead, and they're basically, Godhead is laughing at these earthly rulers talking about how they're going to stamp out God, and God talks about just busting them in the jaw. I mean, it's, it's an amazing psalm. What they did is they saw everything that happened through the eyes of Scripture, through the eyes of Scripture. Yes, Lord, this was prophesied. Yes, Lord, this is, this is Psalm chapter 2. Yes, Lord, we understand that tough times are going to come that way. Yes, Lord, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we're suffering persecution, so that must mean we're living godly in Christ Jesus. Thank you for letting our aim be to be well-pleasing to you. And they all agreed. They were all in one accord. And they kept it all about Jesus. Look what happens next. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, where they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. You had this all orchestrated, Lord. This didn't surprise you. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants. It's all about Christ. Lord, I'm serving you. I'm focusing on you. My kingdom's not of this world. I'm, I don't love the world to make myself an enemy of you. I want to stay totally focused on you. I want to make it my aim to be well-pleasing to you. And then, quote one of my favorite quotes from Clubber Lang in Rocky Three, when he was beating up on Rocky, he said, I got a lot of mo when that came from, a lot of mo. And that's exactly what the church is saying here. Look what their prayer is. Now, Lord, verse 20, look on their threats and grant to your servants, which is us, that with all boldness, they, which is us, may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What you just did through Peter and John, do it through every single one of us. They want to crush Peter and John. Lord, send us out hundreds. Send us out thousands out into the world to take it to them, light against darkness. Lord, you use those two. Listen, list everybody else. I'm signing up. I'm in. Let me go. This church was on fire, on fire, because they cared about nothing than making their aim to be well-pleasing to him. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first of this request was granted, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. With boldness. I don't know about you, but, um, man, you would not think that these people were worried about what the state can do to them. They didn't care about losing their jobs. They didn't care about losing anything that they had because they basically had all bonded together and they were living like in a communal setting and God was meeting every one of their needs and they woke up in the morning seeing how they can serve him. And as far as where they slept and where they ate and, and what they did, that, that was all God to take care of their needs and he was bountiful taking care of their needs. We, on the other hand, wake up in the morning and it's all about us. What am I going to do? How I'm going to build my business? How I'm going to take care of my stuff? How I'm going to do this or do that or do that? Because that's just the nature in which we live. They were different. And since we acquire so many things, we're afraid of losing those things. And the raw power of the government can take those away. So therefore, we rather stifle the message for fear that we will lose something we can never take to heaven with this anyway. Ever. Ever. If you remember Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to acquire what he can never lose. Never lose. And if you will notice in verse 32 and following, they went right back to what worked the first time. They went right back to this living life together. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and grace, great grace 
was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one, to anyone as had need. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. I'm bringing more than this person's bringing. I made $200,000 a year. This person made forty, And so that's not really fair. Well, sure it is. You're giving all and they're giving all. But I should live in a lifestyle that benefits the fact that I made $200,000 and their lifestyle, they only made forty. Why should I sacrifice my lifestyle so that they can be elevated on the back of my labor? Well, that's not living in one accord. And who cares? We care because this is the capitalist kind of society that we live in. That we're judged by how much we earn and how much we possess and how big our house is. But if you really think about it, everything that we have is supposed to belong to him. Him. And that's how they lived. Could we ever live like that today? I doubt it. I think our selfishness and narcissism is pretty much too entrenched, especially in the Laodicean church age. But that's how they lived here. And as an example, verse 36, I'll close with this, 36 and 37, it says that there's this man who was also named Barnabas. Barnabas, which translated son of encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land sold in and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Persecution took place. Nobody cared. Uh, persecution, uh, they, the, the state threatened Peter and John, and by implication, all the other apostles, they didn't care because we live for no other reason than proclaim the goodness of God. And then there's this man that just comes out of nowhere and sold a piece of property, just like other people probably sold property, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And this, of course, leads into what happened in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But this name, Bar man named Barnabas, do you recognize that name? He was the one chosen to go on the missionary journey with Paul. Isn't that amazing? Man gave up his land that he could have gotten rent from. He could have actually expanded it out. He could have been a big landowner in Jerusalem at that time. He could have been apartment complexes, rolled it over, retired, rich and happy and wealthy, and we'd have never heard about him. Never heard about him. He'd have lived his life. He'd have died. Everybody would have talked about what a great man he was. He would have gone to heaven carrying none of those possessions behind. But instead... He decided to take what he had, his security in this world, invest it in the church, invest it in the kingdom of God, and we talk about him even today, 2,000 years later. Has a lasting legacy. We get to heaven, we won't even know Barnabas, the landowner. We get to heaven, we know Barnabas, the missionary. He's the one we want to talk to. God, what was it like? I mean, how irritating was John Mark? You know, who knows what we're going to ask? Isn't that amazing? This is what the church did. Am I advocating it for us today? As a congregation? No. Because our congregation is just made up of individuals. What I am advocating for, that's what we've been talking about for a long time, is you need to learn how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to learn how to be filled with the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis. And the boldness that comes and the proclamation that comes will come from the Holy Spirit living in us. And if we find ourselves running afoul with the government to be, and you will, you will, when you open up your mouth, the church rallies around you and supports you. We honor those people who have that kind of boldness and hopefully use them as encouragement for us to have that kind of boldness because the days are getting darker, are they not? So let me, let me close by reading this to you. It's an email I received this morning from Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey's been one a hero of mine, um, ever since he wrote The Late Great Planet Earth back in 1973. Uh, he's 90-something years old um, at this time. And uh, it's an email uh, that he sent out that I read that uh, kind of sums it all up. Here's what it says. Talking about the war in Ukraine and the situation in which we live. He says, uh, the wars are always packed with tragedy and pain. But these days we see things in a unique way. According to the CIA factbook, Ukraine has almost as many cell phones per capita as the United States. Cell phones double as motion picture cameras and audio recorders. Those mechanical eyes and ears connect to the internet. 
all wars are tragic, but this time we can see wars tragedies in a more personal way than at any other time in history, but not if you watch mainstream media, not. And what we see, the sights and sounds from those Ukrainian cell phones breaks our heart. We see the cruelty, the anguish, the fear, the pain. There may have been times when you were so overwhelmed that you had to stop watching. I understand. It doesn't mean you're hard-hearted, just the opposite. It means you're able to empathize and sometimes that becomes too much to bear. Sadly, Ukraine is not the only place of cruelty and pain on planet Earth. Many Christians in Africa, for instance, face unspeakable brutality. Their daughter stolen, uh, sold into sex slavery. Um, the Uyghurs in China are experiencing a level of persecution that some say approaches genocide. And don't forget the little atrocities committed against vulnerable people, even in affluent circumstances. All over the world, people suffer the after effects of their own and other people's sin. As the days pass, more Christians find themselves praying with John in Revelation 22:20. even so, come Lord Jesus. We long for the millennium, the world he made right by the rule of God the Son, the Prince of Peace. Those of us who know him and know, know that we can trust his will, and where he reigns, he will prevail. But the Bible doesn't just speak about a future kingdom, it also speaks of a God's kingdom in the present tense. Mark 1.15 reveals the message in which Jesus began his preaching ministry. If you remember, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is imminent, it is present. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. When we come to Christ, God transfers us into his kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are part of his kingdom right now. That means he's your king. He reigns in you. Where he reigns, he will prevail. And where he prevails, his power flows. We need that power now. We need to speak his words with authority. We need, to, we need the confidence that comes from knowing we stand safely in the center of his will. May we be circumspect in our thoughts, disciplined in our actions, diligent in our work, and faithful to learn by his will, able to learn his will by studying his word and going to him in prayer. In times like these, may we consistently behave as commissioned representatives of his kingdom for our loved ones and for a desperate world. Can't think of any more words that are more appropriate for us than these today. Let me pray.